I want to welcome you uh, to the second service today. It's Palm Sunday, as Chris mentioned, uh, which is the beginning of Holy Week. And Christians call this particular week holy, not because it's more sacred than any other week. It's holy because the church looks to Jesus during this week like we don't do in any other time in the calendar. We train our vision to see Christ on his cross and then Christ triumphant, risen from the dead. And so, Lord have mercy. <laughs> we, I'm, I'm trying to look for you, Jesus. <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, and, and, and Jesus looks like Alan today. Praise God. Um, we, we, we look ahead to the suffering of Christ. And we don't flinch at the suffering. We stare at his suffering. We see his suffering. We consider his suffering. And we see that that is as much a part of our Christian faith as his resurrection. And we've invited you and asked you to invite other folks. And I want to echo that to come Good Friday, 730 or Sunday morning. Um, the, the, the early church fathers and mothers would call Sunday morning a mini Easter. And so in some ways at New Community, you can invite folks to come at any point, at any Sunday. Because Easter, uh, the mini Easter every week, every Sunday, or Easter coming is, is the time where the church gathers together to remember what it means for Christ to suffer and die and to be victorious over the grave. Easter changes everything. It changes how we look at time. It changes how we look at our lives. Because Christ has faced the ultimate enemy and walked away triumphant. So this week we look toward Good Friday and we look toward uh, Easter Sunday as an opportunity to see Jesus in his suffering and in his triumph. When the church talks about Christ, uh, when biblical writers talk about Christ, we use many images, we use many different metaphors to talk about him. And, and we will look at Isaiah chapter 50 this morning and see how that particular prophet talks about the servant, talks about who the church says is Christ. And what, what the prophets in the Old Testament do is they talk from their place in time. They talk to the people who are reading. They talk to the people who they are with, the people they're living among. So there is a sense in which the scriptures speak to the first audience, to the original audience, that the scripture talks to the folks who are picking up the book of Isaiah after it is written. There, there is a strong sense that Isaiah is talking about a servant that he recognizes. He's talking about a person that he sees. And then there is a sense in which the prophets of old, the prophets through Throughout scripture, Isaiah included, not only talk to the people of their time, but their words translate across time because they apply to a timeless Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so what Isaiah is doing is talking about a particular servant, but he's also talking about Christ. It's, it's a way of looking at scripture and seeing Christ present there. Isaiah is a prophet, which is another way of talking about a poet. He, he is a poet. He is an artist. And, and like any artist, he, he, is, he is on the fringe. He is on the margins. He, he knows what it's like to, to be an insider on the one hand. He's acquainted with royal courts. And he knows influential people. And he, he has powerful friends. But at the same time, he doesn't fit in. He's a, he's a prophetic man. He's a prophetic figure. His, his ministry is to be on the outside. He's straddling between this world of influence and this world on the margins and he's looking from one place to the other knowing what it's like to be in the beautiful city of Jerusalem and knowing what it's like not to fit into that city. He has uh, large expectations for what God will do. He has hopes for his city. He has prayers for his city, desires for his city. And he looks at Jerusalem and he traces it and how beautiful it is. And then he sees it fall into exile and captivity. And he keeps looking, continues to tell the truth, and continues to present the hope that is at the bottom of of his faith. And so we'll look at Isaiah and 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 and, and I want to say that we're not very far from Isaiah this morning. We we don't live in the holy city. At least most people wouldn't talk about Chicago as the holy city. Uh, it's not holy like Jerusalem is holy. It's not the uh, dwelling place of God like uh, that particular city was. But but we're not very far from Isaiah because Isaiah sees the destruction and the death happening in his city and we see the destruction and the decay and even the death happening in our city. Isaiah, who writes trying to comfort Jerusalem, gives us words as we struggle with the the terror in our own city, as we see children in their grandmother's kitchen being shot for no reason at all, or as we see little babies being killed, or schools being closed, or communities being up in arms about what is next in the city, Isaiah has a view and a vision. He, he, he tells us words that help us see how God sees. So he'll, so he'll say things like, uh, she uh, has been punished long enough, talking about his city. He will say, talking about Jerusalem, come and buy you who have no money. Talking about his city. Broke folk, poor folk, come and buy even without money. He will say in the face of death and imprisonment, unfair injustice, prepare for God's arrival. God's bright light is raised upon you. In his city, he talks about this servant. And as I said, the church makes meaning out of his words 
and says that he is not just talking about any servant. He's talking about Jesus Christ. So let's listen for the word of God this morning in Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 9. I'm actually going to have you read it. Um, It's just a few verses, and so clear your throat, if you will, and uh, read this. I'll start you off, but uh, don't give that whisper of a voice. Read like you want to read it, even if you don't want to read it, all right? Come on. The Lord God has given me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are uh, behaviors that this servant takes in this passage. And uh, before I go through the three or four of them that are here, I want to say that uh, what, what the servant does is not a mistake. What he does is not incidental to his character. He does not react and act in the ways that I will talk about. The servant here is making a decision that becomes a pattern. And his pattern uh, becomes a way of life. And his way of life becomes, oddly enough, his joy. And so, so what we see, uh, and if you read the entire book of Isaiah, you will pick up this theme. If you look at the Gospels and how uh, the Gospels uh, talk about Jesus and his story, you will see this theme as well. Uh, there are decisions that the Savior makes that become patterns for the Savior that we can pick up. Uh, and his pattern becomes what we call the way of Jesus or the life of Jesus. And his life makes up his joy, his delight. And in some ways, what is before us as people who follow Jesus is we get to follow him in making choices. We get to follow him in developing patterns in our lives. We get to follow him in having ways of being. And we get to follow him in creating joy out of those ways of being. This servant here, as Isaiah talks about him, um, does three things. The first I'll talk about is he listens. Say the word listens. God uh, speaks and gets this man's attention. This servant, this person we come to know as Jesus. Scripture says that God has given him the tongue of those who know. Daily God gives and daily this servant hears what God says. Now in this text it looks like the servant waking up and hearing God's voice. I don't want you to take that language too far. Uh, some of us have trouble waking up, especially if it's very early. Uh, I am one of those people. And so when I read passages like this, I say to God as I do, I hope you know, waking up doesn't mean very early. Because you know, if you have things to say to me, I'd rather you say to me uh, late at night. So God talks to me at midnight, 1 o'clock, late. But it's really early. It's just before the rest of you people who get up at ungodly hours of five and six and seven. Um, I mean, I don't want to talk to anybody that early. I, I don't want to talk to God that early. I already have to talk to that little boy uh, waking me up and saying, comb my hair, daddy. Uh, 
but 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 there is this sense that we wake up to God that we turn our ears to the voice of God and there is something strong and sustaining in what the servant what the savior hears from God and it is God who opens his ears He doesn't open his own. And sometimes I think that it's, 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 it's um, for us to open our own ears. I think we, we think we can open our own closed ears when closed ears may mean that God still has work to do in us. That, that not having ears open yet uh, means that we have something to want from God. We have something to desire from God. We have a prayer to pray like, God, open my ears or God, do your work and let me hear you. That, that is as much a part of listening as anything. And this servant here seems to do that. He doesn't have a lot to do in this passage when it comes to listening because God does most of the work. God has the longer list of things to do when it comes to communicating and speaking. I was at Columbia College this week for what they call Story Week, which is a kind of festival uh, for writers. It's open to the public. I'm not a student there. So, um, and they, uh, they have had various people there. And Sapphire was there. Sapphire is the uh, novelist and poet who wrote uh, Push, which uh, was the novel that uh, folks used to make Precious and uh, the movie Precious. And she also wrote The Kid. And so she talked about writing and um, she signed books and so forth after, and uh, after she finished signing books, I sort, of, I sort of walked up to her, introduced myself, and she asked me, she said, are you a writer? And I said, no, I'm not, but I want to be. And, and she kind of looked, and she said, well, that's all that matters, that you want it, because if you want it, it'll happen. And she was done. She was on to the next thing. And uh, I was on to the next thing. And I thought about that language, because for me, the language captures most of our faith, that there is a sense that we have things to do in response to God. That is true. That is right. There are, there are acts to perform. There are habits to develop. There are patterns that to follow. And I already said that Jesus does that, that we follow him. But, but there is a stronger sense in which what is at the foundation of what we do as people of God and people of faith is cultivate a desire. That, that, that what we have to go after is a want and a passion more than doing things. Because, because God, if Isaiah 50 is right, has more to do uh, in communicating God's self to us than we do. We can't make God talk to us, reveal to us, show things to us. We uh, make space for God's voice. We pause and wait for God's voice. We don't manufacture uh, God's voice. We cultivate a, a hope, a desire, a love for God. It is much softer. It is much simpler, even if it's hard to say, I don't have all these things to do. I have to make space in order to love God. I have to be in the same place 
as God and hope that God will say things that I need to hear. Does that make sense to you this morning? This notion uh, that, that while there is something to do, there really isn't much for you to do. That this week, maybe, this Passion Week, this week where we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, maybe what you need to be thinking about is how you can pull back for a minute, for two minutes, for about five minutes, and say, Lord, I'm on my way to work, and rather than listen to my favorite podcast or whether than turn on the news, will you use this time to speak to me? The servant here in Isaiah is listening. He is getting a tongue for the weary. Uh, One commentator I read said that this passage is first for those who are weary, first for those who are tired, first for those who are exhausted. Because when we are tired, weary, or exhausted, we are more naturally to stay in the same place rather than get up and walk and run around. Being tired, staying in the same place is often all that it takes for God to say, oh, now I see you. I'll sit with you since you're not moving so fast. Servant listens. Number two, uh, the servant here is suffering. Say the word suffering. Pastor Peter has uh, talked about suffering lately, and I I haven't mentioned that y'all should pray for him. Uh, Y'all need to pray for me, because if you're one of his Facebook friends, you know why he's not here, and uh, you know he needs y'all to pray for him. But uh, I'm not going to say more than that. Uh, Anyway. Um, He's talked about suffering lately and, and recently, and the, the, there, there are reasons why we suffer. And uh, some of us suffer because we make mistakes. Some of us suffer because there are consequences to what we've decided. Some of us suffer because the world is wrong, right? Uh, but, but then there is this other kind of suffering that comes, and it's coming up here. And it's the suffering that comes when God sends you to suffer. Uh, this is this is the this is the grown the grown folks uh, suffering here. Uh, imagine imagine like Jesus here, who doesn't deserve, didn't choose wrong, didn't didn't decide wrongly and suffer because of it. The world isn't wrong, so Jesus. No no no. The Bible says that Jesus suffers because it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He does not suffer for his own sin. He does not suffer because the world is unjust. He suffers because God sends him to suffer. He suffers because within God's person is a love so remarkable that it is worth suffering for. The question for us is can we follow this kind of God? Not can we believe in this God. Not 
even can we worship this God and say, you are God. You do what no one else can do. You are worth ascribing all value. You are God. No. Can we follow this God who loves so much that he suffers when he shouldn't? Now, I'm not the one to, to look at anybody's suffering and dismiss it. I, I don't believe that um, that's right. I don't think that's loving. I think even as the church, when somebody suffers, we're supposed to respond by sitting in the midst of that suffering and usually by not saying a whole lot, by shutting up, by sitting, by standing, by kneeling there in the midst of that brother or that sister suffering. Um, I think that's true. I think that's right. I think looking at suffering as it is, is what the church's job is. So I I want you to hear that when I say that there is suffering worth paying attention to, and then there is the suffering of Jesus. Um, And sometimes we look at our own suffering so much that we need something like Holy Week or the Passion Week to recall that there is a suffering outside of our own suffering. You know how something is really close to you or you're having an argument with somebody or you're, you're, you're fighting with somebody or somebody's making you upset, you know, and you, all you see is what's in front of you, right? It's right there. It's, it's the only thing you see. And, and what, what I'm encouraging you to do is step back and to see uh, your suffering or our suffering in light of the Savior who suffers. Because because the Savior suffers for us. And for some of you, that's going to be good news because you don't suffer right now or you're not suffering right now. So you're looking to appreciate the Savior's suffering or you're more inclined to appreciate the Savior's suffering. Life is really easy for you right now. For others, it will be a stretch for you to look past your own current circumstances and say, there is more to the world than what I'm going through. There is more to Christ than what I'm going through. Where is Christ suffering? in the world outside of my life but for all of us we need to listen for and look for the suffering of Jesus this week because it is it is it is it is uh, it, it is a picture of God's vision for the world now now hear me because I might mess this up when I say it this way but Jesus does not offer us a model in his suffering he does not give us an example Uh, of how to suffer. The text, when it talks about his suffering, goes to his face and talks about how he is insulted in the worst way. Uh, It talks about his face, his, his face being turned toward insult and enemy. And we see that God is present, but God is not shielding him from his troubles. We see that God is present, but God is not protecting him in this sense that his life is easy. His life is not easy, but his abuse and his suffering is not a model for us. It is, on the other hand, a substitute for us. 
I'm not one of those people who finds redemption in, uh, or who finds suffering to be redemptive. I don't, I don't believe that suffering is redemptive, and some of you may, uh, and we can fight about it, we can argue about it. I think there is suffering uh, um, in, uh, there's redemption in suffering, but there's nothing inherently good about suffering. Uh, and, and that's why I'm thankful that Jesus bears the ultimate price, the ultimate penalty, the ultimate suffering for our sins, because what he does is he says, I have done this, because the world should not be this way. So I will take what the world offers so that you do not have to take what the world offers. I will defeat all suffering, all death, all wickedness so that you can live a life that is different. I will take what you should never have to take. Often we talk about how Christ bore our sins, right? And how he died the death that we couldn't die. He did. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we couldn't die. But there's another word that Jesus died the death that we shouldn't die. That's where, that's the little slice where love begins to penetrate, right? Jesus looks at you and looks at me and says, your life shouldn't be this way. And so I will suffer for you. And there's a real sense that as we follow that Christ, we will suffer forward. When we, when we love Jesus and when we love people the way Jesus loves people, we will be tortured for it. There is a sense that when you love people enough that you will die for them, that's what Jesus does. If you follow that Jesus, maybe your life looks like that, right? You will suffer for it. And I found a a quote from from a a lady's blog I read, and she was posting some stuff from her pastor uh, who offered this Lenten meditation here. Uh, And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's right here. Uh, the word novice is a, a beginner uh, of someone who is in religious life. And uh, this comes from James Martin's book, uh, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. And it says, when I was a novice, one of my spiritual directors quoted the Scottish philosopher John McMurray, who contrasted, quote, real religion with, quote, illusory religion. The maxim of illusory religion is as follows. Fear not. Trust in God, and God will see that none of the things you fear will happen to you. Real religion, said McMurray, has a different maxim. Fear not. The things you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you, but they are nothing to be afraid of. There is this sense, I mean, if you live three days, you suffer. And so the things that we don't look forward to have a way of happening to us. But but when we live a life after Easter, or when we live a life looking forward to Easter, when we live a life embracing that Christ has defeated death and destruction, what we suffer from matters, and it doesn't matter. It is... And it isn't. I mean, it's, it's true that we're suffering. And at the same time, it's true that that suffering under God's view is defeated. 
God has a way in this servant's experience of being present and sustaining us even when he does not shield us. And I think that's big boy and big girl faith. When, when, when we can see God sending us to suffer and being present in the midst of that. Nobody wants to, not, not, not sane people. There's a quality of insanity to Christianity. It's unthinkable to follow Jesus when God is sending him to suffer. And yet, that's what God does. Can you follow him? The servant here suffers. Lastly, he forgives. Now, forgiveness is a very big word, and I could almost sort of put up a few points to sort of be very careful to talk about what it is and what it isn't, because um, forgiveness is uh, seeing the world for what it really is first I mean in order to forgive you have to you have to claim what is real you have to say this was wrong this was the offense Um, so part of forgiveness is opening up our eyes and seeing what really happens part of forgiveness is 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 taking what really happens and feeling the impact of it. The Bible in this chapter goes to the face when talking about this servant and how he was struck, how his cheeks were pulled, how his beard was pulled, how he did not hide his face from disgrace and spitting. The the Bible is very, very clear in describing the suffering here uh, so that forgiveness happens. Part of it is not just seeing it for what it is, but feeling the impact of it. But a part of forgiveness is also loving as much as possible. Not a whole lot is possible. Maybe there's less possible. Maybe there is a lot possible. But but the Savior here, the servant here, is doing these things. Another writer in the latter part of the Bible in Hebrew says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That that he learned how to how to how to forgive after suffering. Look at verse 6 here of Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He gives his back. He takes a lot, but he gives a lot. He gives his back. He offers his cheek. He opens his face to slapping. He's insulted in the worst way. Um, I told 
them this in the earlier service. I asked them, I said, think about what it meant for you to be insulted when you were coming along. So if you would think about your uh, growing up years, um, remember when somebody would insult you? How'd you know you were insulted? That's good. I don't want you to answer this because I'm not prepared for how you might respond. So um, I, I will offer mine because I've had some time to consider this and think about this. And one of the ways I knew uh, that I was being insulted when I was growing up is when somebody said, yo, mama. Now, yo is spelled Y-O, yo, mama. And uh, yo, mama was a phrase that uh, was an invitation to a fight, right? Uh, so so now, now, to be honest and to be truthful, your mama could be safe in the company of people you cared about, right? And your friends. So, you know, y'all bounce back and forth and talk about one another's mother. And I have people who I'm known to even go and still, at the, at the age I am, at the age we are, to still remember those days, right? Because we could do that. Because they have that permission and I have that permission for us to talk about each other's mothers. But, but we're friends, right? So for every else you don't get that privilege right and so where I was coming I grew up on south side and uh your mama was um and and sometimes words came after that sometimes it was just your mama and people would get hurt just by saying your mama you know no your mama's right there no you know so you sort of miss it because it's a charged word it's a charged phrase and you knew an insult was coming Think about your own example, right? How did you know where you grew up or where you came from, where, where uh, the insults came from? Well, Jesus here is being insulted in ways that uh, everybody who reads this text gets. To say nothing of the fact that he's God taking this. Now, just as a person, you don't pull somebody's beard in this culture. You don't spit. You don't spit on anybody today, right? In the United States of America, Chicago. Let's not even go back and layer on the meanings in Jesus' initial context of what these kinds of things mean. He was insulted in the worst way. And Scripture says... That the attitude at the bottom of this servant being insulted like this was, who can declare me guilty? The attitude at the bottom of this servant was not, let me get at you, let me come at you. The attitude of this servant was, you can't be any closer to me than you are right now, and I don't want to send you away. You pull somebody's neck, you pull them close, and that's right where Jesus could open his eyes as a servant and say, I see you, and I love you. And I'll t- Now, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Like, it doesn't make any sense on one hand because it's, it's, it doesn't sound right. And yet this is the image that Isaiah gives us. This is the image that the Gospels leave with us as we talk and listen to the story of Jesus. 
the Bible says that he sets his face like a flint. And a flint is a, is a dark stone, a, a smooth stone um, that is used. It's a tool uh, used in carpentry and sculpture. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like what you use, I imagine, a hammer and a chisel. You've got ceramic or you've got concrete. You take a chisel and you, you know, use this flint uh, to, to repair things, to create things. And so you have uh, two very hard images. You have a face that is set like flint and you have suffering and the two of them are meat sparks are flying and at the end of this servant's suffering he says that the Lord God helps me he says behold all of them will wear out like a garment he says there is something stronger about my Mission, my love, my desire that beats out my enemy's strength. There's something weakening in God's persistence. There's something that weakens the enemies of Jesus. Carlton, come on up. When we follow the servant named Jesus, when we follow this person who lives like this, it makes growth really measurable. It makes it easy to see whether God is at work in our lives. Either we're close enough when people are pulling us by the neck to see them and we're seeing them. Either they're plucking our beards or they're not. Either they're grabbing us and spitting on us or they're not, to use that language of the text. Either, either God is... Um, suffering and we're in his footsteps seeing what it's like to be Christians who suffer in a city who want right and right never seems to happen either either we're impacted by that or not either we're hearing the voice of God or not. Either God is speaking to us and we're listening or we're not. And, and this text gives us a way of seeing God's hand in our lives. Am I listening? Am I, am I seeing Christ's suffering? Am I seeing my suffering in light of Christ's suffering? Am I seeing um, opportunities to forgive the unforgivable? The worst insult. We bless you, Lord. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our best. You're highly exalted. You are holy. You are the Lord God Almighty. As we leave this place, would you go before us in the dark days of this Passion Week and remind us that you're there in the dark 
when we don't feel your hand protecting us or shielding us, you're present. Help us to think about Jesus and to love him even more. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said amen. See you Friday. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks, everybody.